You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardenbaptist.org. Man, you may be seated. I want you to imagine just for a moment, as you're trying to find Ecclesiastes in your Bibles, I want you to imagine if today when you walked out of the foyer, that greeter who usually waves at you, handed you an envelope. And everyone's getting these envelopes, and you walk out, and you open it, and in the envelope is $1 million. Just think about that. What if when you left, we gave you a million dollars? How would that change today? Like, I don't know what plans you have this afternoon, but how many of you would have different plans if we gave you a million dollars? What about next week? I mean, you have like your job. Well, let's just, we're probably quitting that. (laughs) Like, who cares? We got a million dollars. What would you do? I mean, how many of you would immediately like drive to a car lot and say, here, take this. I want that. Because you've been dreaming about your buddy's truck for a while. Like that girlfriend, her car is way better than yours. And you're like, I got a million bucks. I'm going to go buy that. Just keep that. I don't need to trade in. Just sell it. I want that. Actually, give me two in different colors. And you just drive off. And how you drive straight to Nashville and like, this wardrobe, nope, not going to do anymore. You just go to every mall, just buy whatever you want, eat whatever you want. Like, and then Monday, go to the bank. And like, I want to pay off everything because I just want to, actually, um, a house for sale now because I want to buy a bigger one. Like, what would you do with a million dollars? In fact, let's just, I know there's inflation. So you're like, well, a million, that's not that much. Let's say it was a billion dollars. When you walked out, we gave you a billion dollars. How many of you can just say in your heart, like, that would probably change my life? Or let's ask this question. How many of you think you'd be just a little bit more happy if we gave you a billion dollars? Just be honest. How many of you? Like, really? Like, we had people, like, weeping first service. Like, yes! Ah! Like, we actually gave it to them. Like, this is a joke. Hypothetical. We didn't actually. They thought, like, they want a car. But just imagine if that really happened. If we give you a billion dollars, what would you do with that? Like, how many of you would go to, like, Nashville and just walk in, like, where do I want to go? I want to go there, book flights, go there, just explore, travel, buy, do what. You could do whatever you wanted to, have no obligations, just well, pursue, pursue whatever desires you had with a billion dollars. In other words, the idea of like, what if, what if in a sense you gained the whole world? What if you had everything you could ever want? In fact, Jesus asked a similar question in the Gospels. Think about like Mark 8 when he says, hey, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? And there's a little caveat and forfeits his soul. Like, would it really profit you if you gained the whole world, but at the end of that, you, you lost your soul? In other words, you disconnected everything from the creator God. Well, what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is a man who got the whole world. And we're going to see really the empty promise of pleasure. We think if we just have enough pleasure, we'll be happy, but it's actually emptiness. Because what we're going to see is Solomon, he actually gains the whole world, and at the same time, he gains nothing. So here's kind of the question that we've got to deal with this morning. When the whole world doesn't satisfy, what are we left with? 
Like if there's nothing on this planet that will actually satisfy us forever, if the world won't satisfy, what are we left with? And here's the answer. We have to look beyond this world. Like we can't pursue everything under the sun, disconnected from God. We have to actually get our pleasure and joy and happiness first and foremost in King Jesus. And then once we look above the sun through him, we can actually enjoy those good gifts that he's given us. But if you disconnect those two, you can have all the world but it won't lead you to happiness. It will lead you to emptiness. And you're like, I don't know if that's true. Well, let's just listen to Solomon because he got the whole world and at the same time got nothing. Let's read our Bibles, Ecclesiastes. If you have it, you can stand out of reverence for the word of God. The words are going to be on the screen. We're actually going to read in our standing chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We're going to skip 15 and 18. We'll pick those up next week as we talk about the pursuit of wisdom. But This uh, morning, we're going to do the pursuit of pleasure. Here's what we read. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would help us to see that everything under the sun really is empty. So we can't seek things under the sun. We must look above the sun to you because in you all things find their meaning and joy and pleasure. We pray this in Christ's good name, amen. You guys may be seated. So this opening statement, it's a little bit of what we heard last week where um, everything is meaningless apart from Christ. He's kind of reintroducing that idea. He says, hey, I explored through wisdom. I'm searching. I'm seeking with all my heart, with devotion. I'm really trying to find, is there anything in this life that's worth it on its own self? I'm really trying to explore, can we find meaning of life disconnected from the Lord? Now we see those phrases under heaven and under earth. Both those are repeated, under the sun, under heaven. And what we've tried to explain is that Solomon saying, hey, if we just kind of take God out of the picture, And we just look at the world for the world's sake. Is there pleasure, meaning, joy? Can we be happy apart from God? If we just look at the world, take God out of the equation, what does it look like? And his conclusion is, it's an unhappy business. Like it's vanity. Like everything, in a sense, is worthless. That word vanity, we talked about it last week, but it's, it's emptiness, it's futile, it's, there's no profit, there's nothing left over. He's exploring all these things and realizing at the end of it, you're hoping in something that is hopeless. It's like if you're like me and you're a UK football fan. It's like we beat Florida, we're going to be national champions, right? Like here's the hope, we've got it, we can do it. And then reality sets in, it's like, oh yeah, it's not going to happen. That's kind of what he realizes. Like all of life, I'm going to put all of my emphasis on this and man, it's probably going to crash and burn. And he actually says it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. It's an unhappy life. It's an unhappy thing that we're here on earth to do. And again, he's using that phrase under heaven, under the sun, which means a perspective apart from God. So I want to give you an illustration that I think captures what Solomon is doing throughout the whole book. And here's the illustration. I want you to imagine that you're a little boy or a little girl, 
and it's Christmas morning, and you're in your living room, and your dad comes in with a gift. And your dad comes in, and he gives you the gift, says, Merry Christmas, I love you. And you open the gift, and you pull what's in it out, and you're unsure what it is. You've never seen this before, and, but everybody watching knows it's a baseball glove. You just don't know what a baseball glove is. So you pull it out, and you thank your dad, you look at it, you, you smell it, you, you put it on, and immediately you decide to go play with your glove. So you run out of the living room, through the snow, into the woods, and you decide to now play with this new thing your dad has just given you. And you're all through the woods, you're, you're like picking up stuff with it, you're like beating your fist in it, you're smelling it, you're, you're looking at it, you're trying to figure it out. And in about four minutes, you're like, this is not that cool. Like, why did my dad give me this gift? Like, this is, this is not a good gift. So you conclude your dad gave you an unhappy gift. This is not something good. He gave you something bad. It didn't bring joy and happiness and pleasure. You're not even sure what it does. But here's the problem. The gift's not bad, but the gift is meant for something else. See, when you ran out the living room, you didn't know that your dad also had a glove. And your dad also had a ball in that glove. And the reason he gave you a glove is so that y'all could go outside and take this ball and you could pass it back and forth. You could play catch with your dad and he would teach you how to throw the ball and how to catch it. And y'all would have an experience together. And there would be this relationship, this thing that you guys would do over and over. Y'all would talk and laugh and take breaks together and come back out and play catch. It was meant for relationship. That's what the glove's for. And not only relationship with your dad to play catch, but your other friends also have these gloves. And these things called bats. And we're going to go on the weekends and all get together and play this game called baseball where you get to use your glove for a bigger purpose in a bigger game where there's actually joy and happiness in that glove. But what you did, you just ran out the house and you ran into the woods and just decided, I'm going to take this for myself and I'm going to squeeze all the joy I can get out of it disconnected from God and community. I'm just going to love it for the sake of itself. And what you found is it brought no joy. And so you in your heart, you cursed your dad. You said, dad, this thing is, this thing is worthless. I think that's what Solomon is trying to paint when he says, under the sun, under heaven. We're going to look at all the things of life, wisdom and work and pleasure and all these different things, but we're going to be like little kids who run out in the woods with a glove to say, let's seek pleasure for its own sake. And we're going to find is in the woods chasing pleasure by itself, disconnected from our creator, God, we are going to find it to be empty and lacking because we're not using it how it's meant to be used. We were supposed to find pleasure in God. And then everything else would give us little bits of joy coming from the source of joy. So I think that's that imagery that he wants to paint for us. So as we look at pleasure, remember we are the little kid in the woods trying to seek it apart from our father. And it was never meant to be sought outside of God. So let's just get into what Solomon does as he has this experiment. So we're going to get to wisdom next week. We're going to chase down pleasure this week. And think about that metaphor, little kid in the woods with a glove disconnected from catch with your dad. And let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to see Solomon's pursuit of pleasure. Here's what he says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I mean, what a statement. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's got unlimited resource, unlimited money, very wise guy. 
And he says, you know, test number one, to see if this world has something to offer, I'm going to pursue pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And here's kind of the rules. Enjoy yourself. Just chase down pleasure. Whatever you think make you happy, go and do that thing. And I would say that this is sort of a cultural motto that we have, right? Like this is what we are trying in our experiment right now. Hey, just whatever makes you happy, go enjoy and do and go to the fullest in that thing that makes you happy, that gives you desires and just chase that down because, well, life is about happiness, I mean, we are people that like in our independence, what do we say? We say that we are the people that have inalienable rights. Like we believe in life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like that's what we do. Like we are the people pursuing happiness. Well, Solomon is going to try that out. He's like exhibit A of can you be happy by pursuing happiness? I mean, it sounds like it would make sense. Like you're going to be happy, pursue happiness. Well, Solomon, he is going to try the pursuit of happiness. And it's the opposite of what his dad will say. For instance, in Psalms 37, where he says, delight yourself in the Lord. It's a big difference. Solomon says, enjoy yourself. David says, delight yourself in the Lord. So we're going to see Solomon trying to delight himself and enjoying himself, not in the Lord, but in all the stuff the Lord has made. Disconnected from the Lord. And he sort of gives it away right off the beginning of what he finds out. This is exhibit A, verse 1, but behold, this also was vanity. So what he sees is the top is actually the bottom. That the very top, the, the very pinnacle of all of life, when he got all of life, the very top was actually the bottom. He says, when I got everything, I had nothing. So what do you do when you gain the whole world, but it doesn't make you happy. You have to look to something beyond the world, which ultimately is our King Jesus. So let's just watch how he does this, because some of us don't believe it. We're like, no, if I got everything I ever wanted, I would be happy. I mean, that's what every ad is telling you, right? Every show you watch, every sports game you watch, like every ad is saying, if you buy this, you'll be happy. If you get this razor and shave this way, you'll be happy, right? If you spray this stuff, they'll chase you. You'll be happy. Like, just buy this. Like, here's a car going through a city with nobody in it. Like, you know, every commercial, like the car with like city with nobody in it. Like, you'll be happy. It's driving around the city and nobody will be there. It's really cool. Have this car and you'll be happy. That's every commercial. If you just get more, you'll be happy. Solomon is going to scream to us, I got more. And with all the more I got, it was just emptiness. And so we might not believe that, but let's see it sort of lived out in Solomon's life. So he had these different... He's seeking after pleasure. The first place he seeks is in comedy. Verse 2 says this, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So for Solomon, I want to be happy. I want to pursue pleasure. Surely those people who laugh a lot are happy, so I'm going to try to just laugh a lot. So maybe he got gestures like to come in and perform like comedy bits, and he's just trying to fill his days with laughter, not thinking serious things, but just, you know, lighthearted entertainment. Like if he was here today, he's going to Netflix, and he's watching every season of The Office. He's like, he's just watching all the way through. It's like, man, I'm laughing. This is so funny. And at the end of it, it's like, well, that was funny, but life still has some hard things. So what do I do? And then he goes like YouTube and watches cat videos and watches all of them. And it's like, man, okay, I, I, there's, I'm still, I laugh, but there's still serious things that I have to deal with. So laughter, this idea of pursuing comedy for the sake of comedy, it did not make him ultimately 
happy. So next he's going to try wine. And if Kami doesn't do it, maybe a good buzz will do it. Verse 3 says this, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So surely, if I cheer my body with wine, I mean, it seems like the people that drink wine are happy. They look happy. They're smiling. They're laughing. Maybe if I do this, I'll be happy. And the original language, is, it's kind of hard to like, what exactly is he saying? In other words, there's sort of two opinions. Either one, he's a connoisseur and he's getting like all these nice bottles of wine. He's having like taste testing, having his buddies over like cheese and fine wine and having them with dinner. And he's just getting like that buzz, just heightened a little bit of a dull sensitivity, just kind of having a buzz and trying to keep in that all the way through life. Maybe they'll make it more happy. Or he's like going into a drunken stupor. Like, we're not sure which one he's going at, but I think if you just read the text, it seems like he's doing both. Like, I think first, he's a connoisseur. He's just like tasting all of the fine wine. He's keeping his wisdom. His heart's still guiding him. He's not drunk in stupor, but at some point, like the long buzz, it doesn't lead to ultimate happiness because there's every morning. You have to kind of wake up and start it again, and when it wears off, you got to have it again. So like this kind of this, this slow, medicated life, it doesn't fix all of my problems. And then it's like, well, let's just go to a drunken stupor. He says, then I'm going to try to lay hold of folly. Like now it's like, just give me the bottle. Like no more tasting. Let's just turn it up, see what that does. It's like both of these scenarios, it's, he's, he's trying to find ultimate satisfaction in wine, in sort of numbing the pain, getting a buzz, getting drunk, kind of both of those scenarios. And at the end of it, he's saying, you know, it's, it's vanity. It doesn't bring me ultimate joy. That there's always a coming off. There's always having to get back up. And, and it still doesn't numb all of the real situations in life. And notice what he says. He says about the the good of the children of man. That children of man, Solomon uses that a lot all throughout Ecclesiastes. And man, that Hebrew word can translate also Adam. And I think what he's trying to get at is the children of Adam. In other words, this is like east of the garden, outside of God's presence. For the children of Adam, we have a few days on this earth. So what are we going to do to be happy? Well, let's try comedy. Let's try wine. Let's try these different things because there has to be something. We've only got a few days. So let's just try to get through them as happy as we can. But at the end of the day, it doesn't lead him to ultimate satisfaction. It leads him to more and more emptiness. You always have to go back to whatever the substance is. It doesn't fix anything. It just causes the problems to linger more and more. Next, he's going to try works. And he goes from wine to works. What if I just accomplish everything? Like, like, like what if I accomplish all of my goals? What if I, my life plan, what if I check it off and I get everything I could ever want? This is his next experiment. Notice what he says in verse three, or I'm sorry, in verse four. I made great works, not just works, but great works. He says this, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now, I just want you to notice as we read this, the myself language. He's not just building houses, he's building houses for myself. He's doing all these things for himself. This is self-indulgence. 
He's not doing it for the good of neighbor. He's not doing it for the glory of God. He's doing it for himself. He is the one that's making all these things for him. Notice verse five. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house for me. So here's Solomon. He is accomplishing great things. He is building great things. Notice at the very beginning, he says, I built houses and I planted vineyards. I remember when I was about in middle school, MTV Cribs came out. It was the coolest show. Because MTV Cribs, what you could do is you could watch a celebrity and you could watch them go into their house and they would show you all of their stuff. It was like the coolest, like some rap star, um, some athlete who makes way more money than we'll ever make. They will bring you into their house and show you their cars. And you're like, you're walking in, there's like bowling alleys. There's like pools on the roof and helicopter landing pads, giant TVs, like plush sofas, huge beds, like just immaculate. And I remember as a kid thinking like, if I had that, I'd be so happy. Like, if I had a pool on top of my house, life would be good. And I'd be like, helicopter, where should we go today? Like, that would be awesome. Life would be good. Everything would be great if I just had enough money to build the biggest house. Well, Solomon, he's there and he did it. Like, MTV Cribs would have to spend, like, several seasons just on Solomon's stuff. Like, he had not just houses, he had houses upon houses, like if you read in 1 Kings, he built God a temple and then he built his personal house like almost twice as big. Kind of funny, right? Like here's God's house. I'm building my house just a little bit bigger than God's house. And he builds like all of these houses and he plants all of these vineyards. And notice all of it is for himself. I mean, that's kind of one of the promises we have. If we would just have the right house in the right place, we would be happy. But we kind of get to experiment with a Solomon lifestyle because we have things like VRBO, right? And so what we can do with VRBO is we get to go and act like we have a bunch of vacation homes. Like for just a little bit of money, we can rent somebody's really plush house, an exotic location. We can walk in and act like we own the place and like, this is great. I'm like a celebrity movie star. But then we have to leave after a week and cleaners come in. And we don't really get to own it. But we get to just play the part for a moment. And we think if we could just really have that, if we could really have enough houses and enough places and live in the right thing, then we would be happy. Solomon says, I had it and I had it more than you ever will. And at the end of it, it was vanity. See, what happens when the world doesn't satisfy, you have to look at something outside the world. He had houses, he planted vineyards for himself. Notice he made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. He had these pools that would water them. You can go on Google and look up Solomon's pools and you can still see these giant pools that he made. I mean, he's got swimming, this is like kings, this is like thousands of years ago. He's got pools for his trees. Like, that's a pretty good lifestyle, right? Like, he has it all, and you see that he plants all of these trees, and there's fruit trees, and he's got this place that almost looks perfect, and the problem is, when you build a lot of stuff and have a lot of stuff, it causes a lot of work. Like, the more stuff you have, the more you got to work. Like, most of us spend our Saturdays cleaning out all the stuff we got, right? It's like, I got to mow that yard and clean it. Yeah, because we got all our stuff, and then we can keep up with it. But Solomon, he alleviated that problem. He says, I have a bunch of stuff, and I don't do the work, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy people. So he buys people. He buys slaves to do all of his work. 
So Solomon can just like walk from house to house and everybody's doing, somebody else is mowing their yard, somebody else is cleaning out the pool. Like he's just like chilling in it. He's got it made. And there's this reference to like, he's planting these, these trees and these fruit trees and it almost calls us back to another place that has planted fruit trees. Almost calls us back to this garden moment where God creates a place for us to dwell with him. A place filled with trees planted by God that would have rivers that are going to water them. That we would find satisfaction in this place and our work would not be by the sweat of our brow. It would be joy. And it's almost like Solomon is getting back that garden scene. And what's wrong with Eden now? What's wrong with all of our work now? It's hard and it has tool. So he almost recreates the garden minus the fall. There's no work in this garden because he just gets to look out at it and see everyone else doing what he should be doing. It's a garden minus the fall. He's trying to recreate this perfect place. The only one missing is God. And if you have a perfect Eden, devoid of the fall, you're still missing the main thing, which is God. And that's, what he, that's why he's saying, even this, it was at the end of the day, vanity. I had all that I wanted, but eventually it didn't last. So not only does he have wine and works, but also he has wealth. Notice verse seven. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and providences. Solomon says, um, and by the way, I've got a lot of possessions. I, I'm kind of a big deal because I have a whole lot of money. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, well, Solomon had some money. But just to put it in perspective, if you Google richest man in the world, Solomon's name will pop up. Like undisputed, he's the richest man that's ever lived on the, on the planet. Like if you think about the top five richest people today and you put all of their fortunes together, it's not even close to the wealth Solomon had according to the scriptures and according to history. It's not even close. So when we take like what the scripture says about, because he ruled over all these kingdoms and they all had to give him like some $40 billion in gold every single year and he had all this stuff and all this money and all these things. When you look at just calculation of what that adds up today, his net worth was $2.2 trillion. Not billion, trillion dollars. He wasn't a millionaire. He wasn't a millionaire. He wasn't a billionaire. He was a trillionaire. Now, just to kind of put that in your mind, our, our preaching guys on Thursday, they did some math and they put it together. And Solomon could spend $1 billion every day for six years. That's when his money ran out. You were happy about a billion dollars for the rest of your life walking out of here, right? Solomon could spend that every single day, $1 billion for six years to spend $2.2 trillion. He had more money than you have. He had more money than any of us ever will have. Like he had it all, okay? He's trying to say, hey, I had great possessions. So if you think the more you buy, the happier you will be, just notice I had it all. And when I look at all of it, I'm saying it's vanity. I gained the whole world, but the whole world didn't satisfy. Just think about just even Solomon's table. So 1 Kings 4 says this, Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores. That's, that's a 50 gallon container of core is. So there's 30 of those of flour. So 30, 50-gallon containers of flour. That's a lot of cake. 
<laughs> that's a lot of dessert, right? Like Solomon's table, just that's a whole lot of food. And notice he had 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle. Like he was eating grass-fed beef before it was even cool. I mean, this is like cool, right? Like he's getting it all. Like he can have whatever he wants and hundreds of sheep besides like all the, you know, the deer and the gazelle, like what everybody's bringing their shotguns. Like he's got a table that's crazy with food. You wanted to hang out with Solomon. You wanted, if he said, hey, you want to come over for dinner? You're like, uh, yes. And how long can I stay? And how many to-go boxes do I get? Because this is awesome. Like unlimited food every single day is what he had. Notice just his horses. First Kings 4.26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 40,000, not horses, 40,000 stalls for his horses. Like, can you just picture that? Imagine how much wealth, $2.2 trillion dollars. He had more money than we could ever fathom or imagine. He could buy anything on the planet. He could buy the planet. He said, I got the whole world. But at the end of the day, when I looked at it, it was vanity. It was empty. It was like cotton candy. I ate it, but then at the end, I was still empty. And you're like, there's no way if I bought that truck. See, the promise that you hold in your mind is just a little bit more will make you happy. Just a little bit more of what you have will make you happy. Like if you just had a little bit of newer truck, a little bit better job, a little bit more money, then you'd be happy. Guess what? When you got that little bit more, you know what you'd want? Just a little bit more. Right? Like, like uh, John Rockefeller, one of the richest people that have ever lived, um, at one time he owned 1% of the U.S. economy, like 90% of all the oil and gas, one of the richest people to ever live. He was asked the question, how much money is enough? A reporter said, hey, Rockefeller, you've got everything. How much money is enough? You remember what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a, just a little bit more. <laughs> he, he like owns most everything. But if I just had a little bit more, it would be enough. Solomon is saying, hey, Jerusalem, what you think as you're going about your day is if you have a little bit more, you'll be happy. I've got everything and I own you and I'm not happy. A little bit more won't do it. A little bit more, you'll want a little bit more. So his wealth could not satisfy his cravings. So when you go from wine to works to wealth, then he's going to go to women. Verse 8, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he's got concerts and concubines. He's got good night life. Now, in that day, let's, let's take music first. Let's take entertainment first. Music was a, a rare commodity. Like, they didn't have Apple, right? They didn't have iTunes. So to hear something, you had to go somewhere, you had to go to a concert. It was really expensive. You didn't just have people come play in your house, right? So Solomon decides, I want entertainment all the time, so I'm going to buy all the singers. I'm going to buy Taylor Swift and just bring her to my house, just let her sing to me all day. Like, that's sort of Solomon's thing. I'm just going to buy everybody. And like, hey, Bruno and Taylor, could you, like, sing, sing my breakfast? That'd be great. I'm just going to eat. Y'all go over there and do your thing. Like, that's his lifestyle. Like just all, he's adding all these entertainers coming into his house. And then, not only that, but it says he has many concubines. Now, if we go to 1 Kings, we see that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
We can say this is a man um, walking away from the presence of the Lord at this moment in his life. Like you are not supposed to do this. He is looking to the world to define what happiness is. And he's looking to other kings and like they've got multiple wives and these uh, concubines and they just do whatever they want. So what if I try that? So he is now trying that. And he says he got many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he is enjoying his nights. I mean, he's got wine, he's got works, he's got wealth, he's got nightlife, he's got concerts and concubines. Like he is taking hold of all he can get. But you know, when you think about entertainment, when you think about nightlife, we actually, in some ways, have more access than Solomon. Because you know what we have? We have Spotify. Just think about it. We have Apple Music. You know what we get to do? Every song that's ever existed, besides like Garth Brooks, but every one, you just click it and it plays. Like, I mean, think about how amazing that is. Like, boom, I just, anybody I want, entertainment, all of, I can have every singer sing breakfast and lunch and dinner and all the time. I can have earbuds in and just have all the entertainers and all the singers. Like, no civilization in the history of the world has had what we have as far as entertainment and music, not even mention Netflix. Like, we've got so much more than even Solomon had. And he had concubines. We have pornography. We have at our fingertips endless encounters, endless images, endless nights, endless pleasures. So we have more music and more concubines than King Solomon. And I would just ask, are we happy? Are we filled with pleasure? Or does your playlist get boring? Like, isn't it weird when you have every song on the planet? They're all kind of dull. It's like, ah, 30 seconds, move, move, move. Like, endless playlist, but like, something about like a CD was almost better because it had limitations to it. Now we have unfettered, unlimited access to whatever we want, and somehow... It's not making us happy, it's making us more empty. It's amazing, Philip Rankin, in his commentary, he pointed out that this Time magazine in the 1960s, here's what he says, back in the 1960s when people were arguing for unrestrained sexual freedom, Time magazine offered this rebuttal. When sex is pursued only for pleasure or only for gain or even only to fill a void in society or in the soul, it becomes elusive, impersonal, and ultimately disappointing. 1960s, before this big revolution, like, hey, we've got like marriage, husband and wife for life, like that's really limiting. Let's just throw off restraints, do whatever we want. This is like before the revolution and Time Magazine, which is not... Strictly a Christian publication is saying like, I think we should hold off because this is probably not going to end well. And here we are 60 years later, way past the sexual revolution. And the question is, are we more satisfied or are we more empty? In fact, we'll just look at another article. Uh, This is in 2022 by uh, Christine Imba, who I don't think is a Christian, Uh, She's writing for the Washington Post with this article that said, consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. So this is 2022, past the sexual revolution. Here's what she says. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide argument among young adults that sex is good and the more of it we have, the better. 
The assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied to a relationship or marriage, that our proclivities are personal, and that they are not to be judged by others, not even by participants. In this landscape, there is only one rule. Get consent from your partner beforehand. But the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. Liberated and miserable. That is our culture. See, Solomon, he's not looking back to Genesis to say, okay, God created male and female and created them for the purpose of marriage, one man, one woman for life. I don't like that. I like what my culture's doing, concubines and all that I can get. That's what I'm going for. And we live in a culture that says, yeah, Genesis 2, no. What Jesus said in the gospels about God made male and female for marriage, one man, one woman for life. We don't like that. We want whatever we want. Many partners, however we want those partners to be, what we want is unfettered, unrestrained. Just do whatever we want. And secular people are saying like, hey, I think we have a problem. The only ethic we have is consent and everybody seems to be full but starving. It's not working. We're not happy. We're actually worse off and we're having to make weird rules about it that don't even make sense. We're groping at something and we can't find the meaning of it. We're like little kids running into the woods with a glove saying, I don't get what this glove is for. What's well, meant to be enjoyed in a relationship with God under his provision. So we see that even women could not satisfy Solomon. Even all of the entertainment couldn't satisfy. Now Solomon arrives, verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. So he became the greatest of all time. We argue about who it is. It was Solomon. Let's end the discussion. It was Solomon. He was the greatest. I remember when I was a kid, the Be Like Mike commercials came out. Like I just wanted to drink Gatorade because some of that's going to make me like Mike. And watch the commercials, Be Like Mike, drink Gatorade. And you know, when that, that last dance came out on Netflix and I watched the last dance and I saw like Jordan in his big house and sort of his eyes glazed over and just talking about all that really happened behind the scenes, you know what I left thinking? I do not want to be like Mike. Like he's like the goat, like grace of all that has everything, won everything, the best. And what I saw, I pitied. He has it all, but he has nothing. That's what Solomon is trying to get to see. I had it all. I was at the top of the world, and the world was actually empty. It didn't satisfy the longings of my heart. So here's the dream, verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my tool, and this was the reward for my tool. Whatever I wanted, I did. That's the dream. That's the American dream. Whatever you want, go get, and if you get it, you will be full and satisfied. He said, I got the dream. I arrived at the dream. I had the dream, and the dream is a nightmare. Notice what he says, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toll I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The dream turned to a nightmare. He got the whole world and somehow the whole world wasn't enough. So what do you do when you gain the whole world and the whole world is not enough? You look past the world. 
You look to something else, something above the world, something beyond the world. Philip Ranke says that word to consider. It literally means to come face to face, to look it right in the eye. He is looking at pleasure right in the eye. All of his life's work that he has done, he is the king on top of the mountain. He won Monopoly. He won the game. He passed go. He didn't go to jail. Like he's there with everybody's money. And you notice Monopoly, like after the game, when somebody wins, you don't keep playing. It's not fun at that point, right? Because somebody's just like, I got all your money. And you're like, yeah, let's go home. That's him. He's got everything. He's looking around like, hey, you want to keep playing? They're like, no, we don't like you. It's, it's all vanity. Like when you win the game, you lose. He's standing at the top of the world saying the world is not enough. He's a little boy sitting in the woods with his mitt saying this glove doesn't work. See, the pursuit of happiness for happiness' sake leaves you unhappy. Solomon climbed the ladder and realized at the top of the ladder, the ladder was leaning on a wrong building. So he got to the top of the building, he's like, oh. It, it, that's why so many of our celebrities fall. Because we have this dream, if we get to the top, then we're going to be happy. Most of them get to the top and realize on top of this mountain, there's actually nothing. That actually in the valleys, there's actually more of life to be had. And they get to the top and... It's a quick trip to rehab often because they realize it's an elusive dream. It's chasing wind. It's emptiness. The whole world, if you had it all, you are not going to gain. So if all the world won't satisfy you, what hope do you have? We have to look at something beyond the world. And that something is the majesty of King Jesus. That's where you have to go to get your pleasure. I want to quote another person from the Bible who got pleasure right. His name's Moses. We're going to hear his story in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, listen to this, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here's Moses, Pharaoh's adopted son. He's got everything, all the money, all the privilege. And he looks at it and he says, you know what? If I compare the wealth of Egypt to the wealth of Christ, there is no comparison. If I put the whole world stacked up against Jesus, Jesus is better. There's more wealth. Yeah, there's pleasure in the world. There's pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting. It only lasts a moment and then it's gone. It doesn't work. It doesn't last forever. What you think is going to make you full actually leaves you empty. So what did he do? He, he considered the reproach of Christ as greater wealth. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. He saw the big picture, the whole picture, the fall, the redemption, the recreation. He knew the end of the story, and Christ is better than all of the world. So what do you do when the world doesn't make you happy? What does the world, when all, what do you do when all that you pursue, it doesn't leave you full, it leaves you empty? You look to something other than the world. You look to King Jesus. You believe what David said, delight yourself in the Lord. See, delighting yourself is not the problem. You were made to delight yourself. You have a longing to be happy and it was given to you from God. You just have to go to the right place. See, to be ultimately happy, it's not in self-indulgence, it's in self 
sacrifice. Notice what Jesus would say in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Not indulge yourself, get all you want, but actually deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, lose yourself and your pursuit of the world and come and find me. And then he goes to that question, what does it profit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Solomon answers the question. It gains you nothing. He got the whole world. And at the end, it was empty. So what do you do? You pursue pleasure where it can be found. You pursue it in Christ. See, when you pursue pleasure in the right place, when you come to Jesus to fulfill your heart and satisfy your heart, guess what? Then all of those things, most of the things that Solomon mentioned, not all of those things are bad things. Many of the things are good things. You can actually have joy in those things when you connect them back to God. Not under the sun, but above the sun. Because when you get your joy in God, then you can properly enjoy his gifts. When you take the mint and you run out of the woods back into the living room and you say, Dad, I'm not sure what this thing is. He says, hey, let me show you. Let's go outside. Now he's got a glove and a ball and you begin to play catch. All of a sudden, that glove that you thought was unhappy business, now it is a good gift that's connecting you to your father. It brings joy. See, the things in this life under the sun, they can bring joy, but you have to connect them to catch with your dad. You have to connect them back to God. You have to connect them above the sun so that under the sun, you can have joy and pleasure and happiness, not just now, but forevermore. See, when we sever that relationship, we are doomed to emptiness. You can have the whole world, but it's not enough. That's why you have to look past the world in order to enjoy the world. You've got to go above the sun in order to enjoy what's below the sun. You have to come into that relationship with Christ, pursuing him first, and then you can properly pursue the things around you. I want to close with the words from a girl that I don't know. The reason I don't know her is because we don't know her name. She wrote these words in the 1800s. Kent Hughes quoted her in his commentary. This is from her journals. The only thing he notes is she's a poor woman in the 1800s. So we have Solomon, king, the goat of all times, $2.2 trillion, had it all. And he says, life is vanity. It's all empty. And here we have a poor woman that we don't know her name. Let's just read what she says. I do not know when I have had happier times in my soul than when I've been sitting at work with nothing before me but a candle and a white cloth. And hearing no sound but that of my own breath, with God in my soul and heaven in my eye, I rejoice in being exactly what I am, a creature capable of loving God, and who, as long as God lives, must be happy. I get up and look at while out the window, I gaze at the moon and the stars, the work of an almighty hand. I think of the grandeur of the universe and sit down and think myself one of the happiest beings in it. Solomon couldn't grab happiness. He grabbed it and it just went through like a soap bubble that pops. It's all vanity. He couldn't grab it. And here's a girl who has a candle and a cloth who says, I'm the happiest person on the planet. What's the difference? She's got God in her soul and heaven in her eye. And everything is happiness. Everything has pleasure. Everything has meaning. Why? Why? Because she's seeing the world through the one above the world. 
See, you can gain the whole world and without Christ, it is meaningless. But in Christ, you can actually enjoy the things of this world in their proper place. You can take the glove, bring it back in to catch with your dad, bring it to the game of baseball, which it was meant for, and it'll give you pleasure and happiness because you're not seeking it alone. You're seeking your father in it and through it and for it. See, some of you, you're trying to gain the whole world and you're empty. So what do you do when you realize the world can't satisfy you? Solomon's pleading. Look at something beyond the world. Go chase God. When you get him, you'll have pleasure forevermore. Some of you still thinking about that million dollars. If I walked out, I'd be happy. You know what would make you more happy? If you walk out these doors with King Jesus in your heart and heaven in your eye because that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for Jesus. God, I pray if there's any in here that don't know you, God, that you would let them come, talk to someone, call the office, set up a meeting, or just spend the afternoon in your word pursuing you. So, Father, we pray that through this message that you would birth new life into people because we can't settle for the world. we got to settle for the one who made the world. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org.